You're listening to a sermon from Centerpoint Bathgate, available here each week. We hope you enjoy this talk and join us for more, either online or in person at Simpson Primary School Bathgate, any Sunday morning at half past ten. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Glad that you are along with us today as we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. We are in the second week of this series, and this word gospel simply means good news. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all focus on this story about Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what this means for us. And last week, in the first few verses of Luke, Luke described and reminded us about why God's Word is a sufficient platform for our faith. God's Word is reliable, it's strong and sure, and it's a worthy platform that we can stand on. It's a sure foundation that supports the weight of our faith. We don't have to be trepidatious as we're walking across and standing on God's Word. And today we're going to look at the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is a big figure in the Gospels. Jesus says about John the Baptist, no one greater has been born among women. But as we look at this, one of the things that we're going to see today is that God plays chess on two levels. God is simultaneously unfolding his corporate purposes, his history of salvation, his big redemptive purposes, but he's also working in our lives. And as he brings us to himself personally, he invites us to be involved in his big picture purposes. So for, thus, for those of us who have said yes to Jesus personally, the invitation is also to say yes to the Lord because in Christ, God's big picture plans and our personal destinies come together. And so we're going to read in God's Word today. We're in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. And the first thing that we're going to see is that we can be blameless but still barren. This is what we read in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Now, let me just pause there. The days of Herod. Herod was appointed by the uh, Roman emperor to be king of Judea and that part of the world in the year 40 B.C. He didn't take the throne until about 38 B.C., and so he died in 4 B.C., so this is the latter half of the first century B.C., and there were 24 different divisions of priests. There were, uh, the, each division would have had two weeks at the temple a year in addition to the three big feast weeks. So a priest worked a secular job, but then would have spent five weeks in Jerusalem doing his priestly thing. There were about 18,000 priests in Israel at this time, and they would take these, these rotations serving there. And so that's the the background for what we read there in verse 5. And this priest named Zechariah married a wife from the daughters of Aaron, so this was considered to be a good thing. He married a daughter of a priest. And then in verse 6, 
We learn about their personal qualities. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, at this time, this is the beginning of the New Testament, so these are Old Testament believers. So, God is is looking at them through Old Testament requirements and and righteousness, and these were good people. They obeyed the law of God. They kept the law. They, They sought the Lord and walked the way that they should, and they were both righteous before before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were blessed, they were blameless, but they were barren. Sometimes we tend to think that if we're blameless, then we'll be fruitful, but that's not necessarily true. Sometimes we can be blameless. We can be living righteously but still not be fruitful. You can also flip that around. Sometimes you look at people and it seems like God is blessing them, but that does not mean that they are blameless at this time. And there are lots of people having lots of children that weren't necessarily as righteous as Zacharias and Elizabeth. Sometimes we're dialed in to think that we can equate these things, and in their case, that was simply not true. The reason that Luke takes time to tell us they're walking blamelessly, they're righteous before God, they're keeping the commandments, keeping the statutes, is that in Israel at that time, to have children would have been an indicator, wow, the Lord is blessing you. And so he's removing this shadow of suspicion that these two people were somehow suspect because they hadn't had any children. You say, no, they're righteous, but they still were barren. And we're going to see that God moves on their behalf to to change that situation. The next thing that we see is that this man, this priest, Zacharias, he was faithful, but he was also fearful. Let's read here in verses 8 through 12. Now, when he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So let me just pause and explain this. So when their division was on, they would choose lots, and someone would be chosen to go in each day. There was a morning uh, incense sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Twice a day, they would burn incense before the Lord, and the, the, the job was to go in first. They would clean off the old coals, then they would put the new ones on that they had brought in. They would check to make sure that the, the candlestick in the, the holy place in the temple was lit, and then they would put this incense on the on incense altar. It was a picture of the prayers of God going up, up to God. And so while the priest was in at the altar doing the sacrifice of incense, the people were outside praying. And they were praying, God, visit your holy place and bring blessing on your people. And this altar of incense was in the middle of this holy place. There was also the table of showbread and the, the, the candlestick. And so Zechariah was chosen by lot to do this. And so a priest would only be able to do this one time in his whole life. And so not all the priests got to do it. It was 18,000 priests. And so it was a huge honor for him. It was a big moment for him to be able to go in and do this thing. Verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Since there was a multitude there, most Bible commentators think that this was the evening one rather than the morning one, um, assuming that not a multitude would have gotten up at 5 a.m. while the, the sacrifice was being given. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar 
of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, this is a small little detail, but really interesting. Fear fell upon Zechariah when he saw this angel. Now, a lot of us, maybe not, maybe, maybe only some of us, but perhaps many of us have had this thought, it'd be really cool to see an angel. It would be really cool to like, meet the Lord in some kind of powerful and dramatic way. Anytime you read about that in the Bible, it's not cool. It's scary. Their fear is the natural response for meeting an angel. You go back and read, you know, Gideon and other people, anytime an angel of the Lord shows up, these are not fat babies with wings floating around playing harps. These are scary dudes. And just seeing an angel fears the response, much less the Lord himself. We don't even have a category for that, just an angel. And so fear is the response. Here's the big idea. Faithfulness does not prepare us for encounters with the living God. Zacharias was completely faithful. He was doing everything he was supposed to do, and he was still unprepared to meet God. There are times and moments and places where God will break into your life in a dramatic way. And I promise you, you're not ready for it. You are not ready to meet the living God. You're not even ready to meet an angel of the Lord, much less the Lord in person. And so the lesson that we extract from this is, yes, we should be faithful, but be prepared because there are times and moments where God breaks into our lives in special and dramatic ways. The next thing that we see is that God makes a powerful promise to Zechariah, but this, this promise comes with a price. Start reading in verse 13. The angel of the Lord said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, just to pause there for a moment, one of the questions that comes up is what prayer Zechariah's has been heard? As he and Elizabeth, by this time, as we, we learned in the story, they were a little bit older and you, you get to a point where you just stop praying for kids if you haven't had them. You're like, young people should have kids and after you've had kids, you know why it is that the Lord gives young people kids because it takes a whole lot of energy to do that whole baby thing. And so we, we don't know if the Lord is answering a prayer that he and Elizabeth had been praying some years before, or maybe it was the prayers that Zechariah and all the Israelites would have been praying for their nation, God deliver Israel and send your Messiah, or maybe it was both. Because the big idea here is that God is working to bring both his corporate purposes and he's involving Zechariah in his personal destiny and bringing these two things together. But this angel announces that your prayer has been heard, and as a result, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he'll be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." 
And so here God is making a powerful promise, but it comes with the price of high commitment. Now, there are several promises that are packed into here. First of all, He will be great. Now, the word for great is this Greek word mega. He will be a mega dude. Jesus later says that John is the greatest born amongst women. So that would make him the most mega dude. John the Baptist, the MMD, he's the most mega dude. He's going to be great. Isn't that a great promise to get from the Lord? Your son's going to be great. Well, that's a great promise. The other one, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This guy's going to have an intimate relationship with God, something every Christian parent wants. My child's going to know God and walk with God, and it's going to be beautiful. These are some great promises. And then probably what is the core bit of this text is that this angel starts describing the job description of John the Baptist. This is what he's going to do. And it's all about turning. It's all about turning people back to the Lord. He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll go before them. The disobedient will be turned to the wisdom of the just, the hearts of the fathers to the children. So where there's been relational alienation, there will be healing. The disobedient will come and turn to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. All of these are powerful promises. But there's a price tag in here that this John the Baptist is going to have to pay, and that is that he must not drink wine or strong drink. That is his personal commitment. That is a kind of consecration. See, many of us want the promises of God. The question is, will we pay the price for those promises? Any promise of God is always entered through some kind of commitment, some kind of consecration on our part. Now, for John the Baptist, it was don't drink wine. For you, it might be something else. The question is this, what price is God asking you to pay for the promises that He wants you to enter into? God makes powerful promises and He brings them to pass, but they often require commitment on our part. Then we come to Zechariah's response to this promise, and I've called this questions and quiet. We read this in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. There's a lot going on here. He comes out of the temple unable to speak because he's been judged by God for doubting and he's making signs and they figure out, wow, he's seen a temple. And he had apparently remained in the temple longer than is normal for this offering of of incense. And so the the people are, are, are concerned there. But to go back, why was it that he ended up quiet? And that is because he doubted God's word. 
The very first thing we read in verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm like, dude, you're talking to an angel. Just put two and two together. It's probably okay to believe full faith these things that the angel is saying. But here's the deal. God's word to Zechariah was insufficient for him. He wanted empirical evidence before he believed. And this is the exact opposite of how we relate to God. We do not relate to God by believing on the basis of empirical evidence. We believe and our faith is what leads us to understanding. The theologian Augustine said it like this, in Latin, credo et intelligus, believe that you may understand. True understanding proceeds from genuine faith. Genuine faith precedes true understanding. If we want to understand first and have sufficient understanding that we'll believe, we will never get to faith. Faith precedes understanding. Zechariah's problem is that he was unwilling to believe until he had empirical evidence. Now, in God's graciousness, in John's case, God's like, I'm going to do this anyway. And here's the sign that I'm going to do this. Jesus said, it's an evil and perverse generation that seeks for a sign. Why is seeking for a sign evil and perverse? Because seeking for a sign simply means that we have not believed God's word. Seeking for a sign is like waving a flag, God, I do not trust you. Now, there are multiple times in Scripture, Gideon is a good example. Uh, also an angelic encounter. The angel shows up. This is what I'm going to do. Gideon's, I don't believe that. The Lord gives him a sign. Sometimes God condescends in the weakness of our faith to give us confirming signs. But it's an indication of a lack of, of faith. It's an indication of doubt. The pathway the Lord invites us to take is one of faith. Another way of of thinking about this is simply to say, because God has spoken, believing His Word, trusting His Word, and acting on His Word is the most rational thing we can do. We'll never rationalize our way to faith, but we can faith our way to a rational understanding of who God is and what He has done. And so in Zechariah's case, God graciously gave him this sign, but it was a painful one. Dude, you can't talk until this thing happens. And so his own inability to speak became the sign for him. Now, the added benefit of that is that he couldn't mess things up by blabbing to the whole world about what this angel had spoken to him because nobody would have believed him anyway. But in his case, the Lord was inviting him on a journey of faith, and he does us too. The last bit of this text is very simply, I've called it pregnant and praising. We finally meet Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, in verse 24. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. Now, here we see this, 
this intersection of God's corporate purposes and his personal blessing. Elizabeth interpreted God's intervention in her life personally. This is all quite personal. She says, thus the Lord has done for me. And so she's thinking about this in the context of all these prayers that she had prayed probably years and years before. God, give me a son. God, give me a child. Lord, I want to be a mama. Lord, please bring this to pass in my life. And eventually, God did that. And she interpreted that personally. But as we stand back, God is doing much, much more than just meeting a woman's prayer. God is putting things in place for his corporate purposes. This brings us back to this big idea that God plays chess on two levels at the same time. Yes, the Lord is blessing a woman. Yes, the Lord's blessing a family. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're going to have a son and it's going to be great and they're going to enjoy being parents, but God's doing much more than that. God is acting to get people ready for his son, the Messiah, Jesus. So as we reflect on this passage, there are some observations, lessons, and actions for us from the Word here. And first of all, the observation and the reason this passage is here is simply to tell us that God is putting people in place for His purposes. The Lord acts, and when God acts, He does it through people. And He's putting Zachariah and Elizabeth in the right place and through them bringing John the Baptist on the scene who's going to be the precursor, the one who helps get Israel ready for Jesus. When Jesus comes and everything that Jesus does, it's on the back of this preparation work that John the Baptist does. So yes, God's bringing salvation to his people, but before he ever gets there, he's putting the right things in place and he's doing that through people. And one of the big lessons that we extract from this text, very simply, is that faith in God and faith in His Word is rational. Because God exists, it is rational to believe in Him. Because He exists, it is irrational to not believe in Him. Because God has spoken, it is rational to accept His Word as true. Because He has spoken, it is irrational to doubt His Word. And Zechariah is a good picture of that. The most rational thing for him to do would have been, Lord, let it be done to me according to your faith. And then uh, according to your word. In the next section, that's exactly the response that we see from Mary, but not from Zechariah. The Lord is speaking him to an angel, and he still doesn't believe. The most rational thing we can do is simply say yes to the word of the Lord. And this brings us to a couple of actions. First of all, for those of us who are believers, there are a couple of things that we need to say yes to. One action is simply to say yes to the promises of God, even when they're delayed. We don't know how long Zachariah and Elizabeth had been praying for a child. Probably for years. And for year after year after year after year, it seemed like God's answer to them was no, 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 no. Delay is not no. The best thing we can do is say yes to the promise of God and dare to believe God's word to us, even when it seems like somehow God's just not showing up, God's not coming through. The Lord is the most wise, best superintendent of our lives, and we can absolutely trust him to bring into our lives 
what he wants us to have, when he wants us to have it, and in the way that he wants us to have it. The Lord is good, and he brings his blessings into our lives at the right time. Another action that we see based on this text is that we can take on board this ministry of John the Baptist. This comes up later when we see what John the Baptist actually preaches, but we, we, we see here and we read that the Lord is going to be calling people to turn back to Him. All through the Bible, this idea of turning to the Lord is, is a picture of what needs to happen in our hearts. The, the New Testament word for that is, is repentance. And for those of us who are Christians, sometimes it's easy for us to think, well, that's what people who don't know God, that's what they need to do. They, they need to repent. And I hold out before you today that actually all of us need to repent. All of us need to turn to the Lord. The reformer Martin Luther, one of his 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg in 1517 was that repentance is a lifestyle, not just a one-off event. As the followers of the Lord, we need to come back to God. And part of what that is, part of what we see in this text is that saying yes to the Lord, turning to the Lord is not just about our personal blessings, but it's about God's big picture purposes. It might be that you have said yes to Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That's the first step. But the Lord is also inviting us today to say yes to His corporate purposes. God's putting people in place, place for His purposes. That involves our lives. That involves our church. That involves this town of Bathgate. That involves West Lothian. Why has the Lord put us here? To be light in the midst of darkness. Why has God called you to be here in this place at this time amongst this people? Because God has some big picture purposes He wants to involve. Praise God if you have turned to the Lord and you know Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Lord this morning is inviting you like Elizabeth and like Zechariah to say yes to His big picture purposes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Zachariah and Elizabeth, blameless, faithful, obedient servants of Yours. And yet in their personal lives, they felt like something was missing. Father, we confess that often we're like that, that in the midst of our faithfulness, there are dreams in our hearts, there are aspirations that we have, hopes and things that we've been praying for. Lord, some of us have been hoping and praying for things for a long time, and Lord, it seems like you're delaying. It seems like you're just not bringing it to pass. Father, I pray for anyone here today that is in that kind of a Zachariah and Elizabeth moment where we're just tempted to interpret your delay as, as a no, the things that you've put in our hearts, oh God, and just not coming to pass. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would encourage us, oh God, that we would be able to trust you, Lord, that we wouldn't grow discouraged. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be wind in our sails today. Lord, that we wouldn't 
give up hope, that we would dare to believe, oh God. Father, in addition to trusting you for personal blessing, Father, I pray that you would also grant us faith for your corporate purposes. What you were doing in the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah was much bigger than them. Lord, sometimes we don't understand just how simple acts of obedience and trusting you in our personal lives can have big picture consequences. Lord, you changed a nation through what you did with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Father, I pray this morning that beyond saying yes to you personally in our hearts that Jesus is my Savior and he's my Lord. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that we could say yes this morning to your big picture purposes. Father, I pray that we would say yes to your corporate destiny, to your plan of salvation, that we would dare to believe, oh God, that through us and our lives and our families in this church, this people in this place at this time, that you could do something great. Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive us to the degree that, like Zechariah, we let doubt and unbelief creep into our hearts. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name as we reflect on you and your glory, your splendor, and your majesty, that faith would grow in our lives today, O oh God, for your personal blessings in our lives and your corporate purposes. We ask this, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen.